is the main machine, Al Green. This is Travis Dodd. This is Greg Oddie. This is Tyson Edwards. This is Brett Maher. This is Dale Pickett. This is Eugene Greenwich. This is Kevin Brooks. This is Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Dale McDonald. This is Sam Jacobs. This is Calvert. This is Marcus Burris. This is Sean Reddish. This is Tony Spackleton. This is Andrew Vlahoff. This is Graham Corn. This is Brian Curl. This is Jason Akamanis. This is Chris McDermott. And this is Mike Ellis. This is Kevin Litch. This is Matt Smith. This is Michael Wilson. This is Brendan T. This is Jordan McMahon. This is Brett Thurst. This is Matt Shanahan. This is Rupert Sapwell. This is Dusty Rakeheart. And you're listening to Amato's Fifth Quarter. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode number 31 of Amato's Fifth Quarter. I'm your host, Dan, and tonight we have got a fan favourite of the NBL, 2007 champion Dusty Reichart. Now, Dust is the epitome of hard work, resilience, and has shown a unique ability to stand up for himself in difficult circumstances and fight for what he wants. Born and raised in Grand Rapids, Minnesota, a traditional ice hockey city, Dust talks us through his love of basketball from a young age. We delve into his time at the University of Minnesota, where he would face some incredible challenges, including being belittled by teammates, and this time also coinciding with the infamous academic scandal and his memories of that time. Venturing to Australia in 2002, Dusty played half a season for the Victoria Giants before establishing himself as one of the true workhorses of the NBL at the Adelaide 36ers under legendary coach Phil Smythe. He would then head over to the Brisbane Bullets where he'd win a championship ring with that famous Bullet side under Joey Wright who would win a league record 21 straight games to ease to the Holy Grail in what some consider the greatest NBL side of all time. Later on in his career, he would play one season for the Wollongong Hawks and eventually finish his career with the Cairns Taipans under difficult circumstances with some frustrating injury setbacks. So from 2002 to 2013, Dusty Reichart played a total of 309 NBL games, scoring 4,655 points, 2,481 rebounds, and 506 assists. He is a one-time NBL champion in 2007 with the Brisbane Bullets, and he was also the Cairns Taipans MVP in 2009-10. It's now time to bring the man on from the Giants, 36ers, Bullets, Hawks and Taipans, it's Dusty Reichardt. The Adelaide with three on one fast break, and Dusty Reichardt gets a pass by Brett Maher and a layup by Dusty Reichardt. Welcome back to Amato's fifth quarter, and today we've got an icon of the NBL, Dusty Reichardt. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast tonight. Thanks, Dan, man. I'm happy to be here. Anytime at all. So, Dusty, you finished up in the NBL in 2013, and it's hard to believe that's already nearly 10 years ago. How's the last nine or 10 years gone for you, and and what are you doing now in retirement? 
Yeah, man. Now that you mention it, it doesn't really feel like it's almost been a decade since I last played in the NBL. It does go fast. Since 2013, man, it's just been fun to put in, in the professional world. I guess you hear it. You play 15-odd years professionally, and when you finally tell it comes to an end, you actually got to get a real job. It's very humbling. So it's just been probably about eight or nine years just trying to find my way where I want to be. So I got my MBA when I was playing. And I wanted to be in finance somewhere, so like a private wealth advisor. So first couple of years, I was kind of just waddling along, trying to find my feet, trying to find a great opportunity. And then I um, ended up with uh, Latrobe Financial. Greg O'Neill, who's the CEO, owner of Latrobe Financial, the huge supporter of the NBL, currently sponsors the NBL, gave me an opportunity as a um, senior manager for Queensland for his fund. I did that for about four and a half years. And then the last eight or nine months, I've jumped over to the private wealth advising with Gem Wealth. So that's where I'm at now. Well, congratulations on everything you've done. And, and I ask this question, I always start off the interviews asking this question because do you think as a, as a professional sportsman and a, a professional athlete, it's important to have other things going on apart from sport? 100%, man. The problem is, though, when you're young, you make some good money and you really don't look outside your little bubble. So you're playing sport, you're, you're pretty much single or you might have a, a young family. You just concentrate on, on your, your world. You don't really think about after basketball what only a short span you get to play the game. And I was fortunate to play up into my mid-30s, 36 years old. But most guys just be in there. you just got your own world. You go to games, you go to practice. Uh, you don't really care or think about anything else. And then by the time you get, if you can play until your 30s, then you're seeing the end of the tunnel and you're like, oh, crap, I haven't done anything. I haven't made connections. And by that time, it's almost too late. And that's why you see a lot of guys deal with that mental health depression and for years, it was unheard of. No one talked about it. More guys are talking about it lately. I think the latest one from the NBL is Mark Worthington went through a huge mental health issue after he retired. And it's no joke, man. You play a sport, you put on a pedestal for 15 years, schedule is set off for you, everything's laid off for you, people kind of look up to you, and then all of a sudden it ends, and you're starting over again at ground zero. It's very humbling, and it's one of those things where players, I try to, uh, when, when a young guy comes and tells me what, what he should be doing, yeah, concentrate on playing the game, going as far as you can, making as much money as you can, and being as successful as an athlete as you can possibly imagine. But you've got to have something to fall back on. Either get your education, make connections. You've just got to have that fail-safe plan because you never know when it ends. Yeah, that's a really interesting answer. Did you, if you don't mind me asking, did you ever go through that sort of stage when you retired, that sort of d- depression, for want of a better word, or did you sort of ease into it easily? Man, I don't think you can get ever prepared for it, to be honest. I thought I did. I, I've got my university degree, bachelor's in science and business. About four years into my professional career, got that master's in business administration. I'm thinking I'm doing the right thing. And then I'm uh, making connections. And, and I thought I was well prepared for retirement. But I don't think anybody, if they're telling you that they were, I think they're lying. Because that transition is tough. Because you used to playing a game that you love. You let your ability to do the speaking for you on the court. And you can control a lot of things. I found once you leave the court and you got to start over again, it's very humbling. And, and, and it's not easy. I mean, I was educated, but I didn't have the experience. I was 36 years old. I was, I was behind the eight ball. I was working with 20-year-olds and in the same position where prior to that, I was flying around in private jets. And this is bullet days with uh, Eddie Groves and CEOs and wanting to have a beer with me. And they wanted to hang out with me. They want to hang out with the players. But once you're done, you're... I guess for the better word, you're shit kicking at the beginning. And it's it's a humbling experience. I went through it. I thought I was well prepared. But you know what? You got to level up and you got to start over everywhere you go. I always look at it this way. I go from high school in America 
you go to the university, you play university, you got to level up. You either got to you got to match that level of intensity, or you go home and you, you just go start a regular job. So I didn't look at it any other way. I, I tackled it head on. Uh, it was tough. I don't know if I had depression. I don't think I did, but there were some times when I'm like, man, this sucks. It's not fun. It's not easy. But everyone goes through it. You just got to level up and, and keep improving yourself. Yeah, it's a great answer, and it's something I suppose that we we, we never played the game at a professional level. We probably don't think about that we sort of just look at you as the sportsman but really you know everyone's struggling in their own ways oh 100 man and everyone does do have their issues some don't prepare for it some think the game's gonna last forever some think they're gonna go into coaching and make hundreds of thousands millions of dollars it's not it doesn't work out that way you either gotta be prepared and the thing i found is don't be afraid to reach out to your network when i first retired i was sitting there struggling didn't know you know where i wanted to do i didn't have a real clear path of where I wanted to go and I was just sending out resumes like a regular person would and then I was like pretty much kicked myself in the ass I'm like man I've met all these CEOs of companies and these high level people I'm just going to reach out and, and just pick their brands and see if uh, they can give me some advice and that's what I did and um, an opportunity came up and you'd be surprised uh, when you're out there and just inquiring about it how many people want to help you because they know you if you were humble and you were nice to them when you were playing and you didn't treat people like shit People recognize that and remember it, and they're more often willing to help you out. Uh, they're not going to give you a free handout. They're just going to open the door for you, and that's what happened to me. Yeah, absolutely. It's- Dusty, going into the, sort of the early days, you were born in Grand Rapids in Minnesota. Would you like to give the listeners a bit of an insight in sort of your family life? If I'm not mistaken, Grand Rapids is more known as sort of an ice hockey place. Where did the, your, your love of basketball start? Yeah, yeah, good one. You've done your research. Yeah, Grand Rapids, you're right, spot on. We're about an hour and a half from the Canadian border in America there. You played ice hockey, you were pretty much God in my town. And ice hockey players, you know, everyone worshipped the ground they walked on. But for me to come out of there playing basketball was pretty much unheard of. But it wasn't like I didn't try my hand at ice hockey first. So I I did try my hand. Um, One summer there was an ice hockey camp. My brother was a goalie, and I thought I had attended with him. And I went there, and I wasn't, you know, up to par with the talent. And um, really got embarrassed because skating forward, pretty easy. But when we had a drill where we had to skate backwards, I fell on my ass and I uh, got made fun of. And, and I thought, man, this wasn't for me. I love basketball and I'm just going to follow that. So that uh, falling on my butt and get made fun of was my first introduction to uh, basketball. Not first introduction to basketball. It just, it just proved to me that I should just stay to the basketball court. I was, I was good at basketball and I loved it. I had a passion for it. And that was probably when I was about eight or nine years old. And then it was just a love. And it was just, you know, no one in my town really played basketball at a high level. We just started a basketball camp in Grand Rapids probably when I was 13 years old. It was my first Grand Rapids basketball camp that they started. And it was just the love that I had. My dad loved the Celtics. He loved Bird and McHale. McHale grew up and went to school about 30 miles from Grand Rapids at Hibby, Minnesota. He was a University of Minnesota gopher and icon, and my dad and everyone in the Iron Range loved watching the Celtics in the 80s, as you do. Uh, they were pretty dominant. He put a basket or a hoop in our driveway, and the rest is history. I just had someone warm up the game, and people kept telling me along the way that I wasn't good enough, I was too slow, I was never going to make it. And I just kept putting all that negative energy into my, my bank or whatever you want to call it, and just developed this attitude that I'm going to prove everyone wrong. They told me that I couldn't do it. It wasn't just at that early age, it was like fifth or sixth grade, when my first someone came up to me and said, oh, you're good now, but you'll never be good in high school. All along my career, all the way up until I ended, there was always some negativity 
in my life around basketball. You can't do this, can't do that. And it was just, you just got to build on it and feed off of it instead of dwell on it. It was just a love that I developed. Yeah, and this journey leads you to, to your, your high school career. And then you attended the University of Minnesota and you walked onto the basketball team. Now, your time there is really interesting because you played over 100 games there over four years. And you made that's when you sort of established yourself. Was there a time where you realized you may be good enough to play at an elite level? Yeah, it was a different process. In America, you get recruited, you play D1 or D2 or wherever you get recruited to. It's all on scholarship. So I walked on to the University of Minnesota, paid my own way. And that was kind of a fluke kind of a, a thing because the year that I went there, they were coming off the Final Four in 1997. So they had one of the best teams in the nation. I was and leaving my high school career. I had nothing. No recruiters gave me a scholarship. I had the D2, D3s offer me and... I turned them away. They were telling me that I was too slow. I was stupid for even attempting to follow my dream to go to the University of Minnesota. The Gophers would never want me. I got turned down from a couple hundred letters that wrote up to colleges across the nation to walk on, and everyone turned me down. Everyone was saying I wasn't good enough. And then a um, teacher at my high school helped me write a letter to the University of Minnesota, just kind of asking to walk on. I was first team all state. I averaged 30 points, 16 boards pretty much. Um, so I was a late bloomer and late notice from everybody. Wrote a letter and, and they allowed me to walk on and gave me that opportunity. Coach Clint Haskins had me in, looked me in the eye and said, look, we're going to allow you to walk on, but it's not going to be a free ride. There's nothing that can be handed to you. You've got to earn everything. And if you're happy with that, you can walk on. And I said, all right, challenge accepted. Let's do this. First couple of years as a walk-on, you're treated like shit because no one takes you seriously. They think that you're just there to hang out with the guys and get girls that are hanging around with the main players. And co-workers I was working with the summer before my freshman year asked me what I was doing. I said, oh yeah, I'm gonna play for the Gophers. And they're like, what, you're gonna be a towel boy? So I mean, it was no easier. It was, it was nothing easy, man. It was uh, nothing easy about it. I didn't have that traditional scholarship. I didn't have that spoon in my mouth that a lot of athletes do when they get to that level. I had to earn everything. I was treated like shit. Not when I say treated like shit, I was just disrespected by everybody from the trainers to the people I talked to just because they didn't know my journey, didn't know who I was. So the first year was a struggle. And uh, I remember my first three months in, I called my dad and my mom. I was crying. I was like, I don't want to do this. I was homesick. I was getting hazed. The upperclassmen were treating me like shit. And my dad, mom just said, stick to it. It will get better. And I was like, man, there's no way this shit's getting better. So I stuck through it, kept working, and just as they say today, kept to the process. But I didn't know what the process was back then. I just knew that I had the ability, and if I kept on working, it, something would pan out. And I remember about three quarters away through my first year there, the assistant coach, you know, I wasn't having a bad practice. He, he come up to me and embarrassed me in front of everybody. He called me the worst player he's ever seen in Division One history. I shouldn't be here. And that's my own coach, my own really? assistant coach. Mate, it wasn't easy. And I was like, well, all right. I could have had depression on the whole way. I could have been, you know poor me, poor me. But I'm like, fuck you, man. I'm going to prove to you that I belong at this level. And I kept working. Second year, uh, my actual first year was a redshirt freshman year. My freshman year, I was able to play. Got put in the first preseason game, scored double figures in my first game ever. So I had the ability. And then eventually my coach, he saw the ability was there. And he just kept on drip feeding me. He's like, I'm going to put you in this situation. Tough game situation, middle of the Big Ten in Iowa. He could have had one of the seniors in there, but he puts me in there, gives me an opportunity, and I've just kept proving him, proving him that I belong. And eventually, it just worked out to the Gonzaga game in 99. We had the biggest academic scandal in NCAA history. Seven, eight guys, starters, got suspended. 
and I, all of a sudden I'm, I'm starting the NCAA game in 1999 against Gonzaga. And the rest is history. I had 25 points, 18 or 17 boards. And uh, we were playing against Ozzy Axel Dench and another guy um, that plays for Towns. I forget his name now. But they were on Gonzaga's team at the time as well. Um, and that catapulted me to getting a scholarship in a three-year career and being one of the all-time leading scorers and rebounders in University of Minnesota history. So, man, it wasn't easy. A lot of luck had to go my way, but, man, I was prepared. Yeah, that's full on. So, um, a, a couple of questions. First off, that infamous scandal. For those who maybe aren't aware, if you don't mind going into it, what was that scandal all about and, and what exactly happened? And were you privy to what was going on at the time? Yeah, man, it was a pretty serious scandal. I was a freshman, had no idea what the hell was going on. I just remember hopping on that flight to Gonzaga and or Seattle, Washington to play in the first round of the NCAA tournament in 99 there. Had no idea what was going on. Hopped on the plane. The story hadn't broke yet. We take that two-hour flight to Seattle. We land. All of a sudden, it's reported everywhere. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm tapping to my roommate. I'm going, mate, this is awesome. I didn't say mate back then. I just said, yeah, well, you know. I said, man, this is awesome. Media is everywhere. They want, a, they want a piece of us because the Gophers were in here. Little did I know the reason the media was all around us is because while we left Minneapolis to go to Seattle for the first round game, it was pre-planned that they had Pioneer Press and Jan Gengelhoff we're going to break the story midair. So when we landed, the shit was going to hit the fan. But no one knew about it. We didn't have smartphones back then. We didn't have any, you know, thing to give us instant access to news. So no one knew what was going on. We were told just to go to our rooms and get ready, just relax, and then they'll come and get us. And we'll go to practice for shoot around. I think a couple hours went by. We were some in the coach's room. And we walk in there, and I remember everyone just crying in tears. And I was like, what, man? And what the hell is going on? They sat us down and they informed us what had happened. The six, seven, eight players that were suspended were all crying in there. Seniors that never played in the NCAA lost their opportunity. They broke the news there. So we played the game, uh, that breakout game, and then we get back to Minneapolis and getting interrogated. Not interrogated, but I guess they interviewed, interviewed FBI, interviewed myself and my teammates, and they wanted to know if any of us knew what was going on, if we were privy to any information. It was the accusations of a scandal, and I had no idea. I did my own homework. And I wasn't a part of it. I didn't know anyone on the team wasn't a part of it. So for me, I was just naive. Maybe I didn't, I didn't see the signs. But it was the biggest academic scandal in NCAA history. I'm just glad I never cheated. him. I did my own work. But to be a part of that, that was definitely an experience that hurt a lot of guys. And the coach got fired and the whole athletic department uh, pretty much got wiped out. But in the in the hindsight, is my opportunity. It gave me an opportunity to shine and get that scholarship. So, looking back in it, it, it sucked. But for me, it was my opportunity to uh, get that three-year scholarship and succeed at the University of Minnesota. Yeah, right. You said that you were often treated like shit and disrespected and stuff like that. Back then, was it a matter of you got to stand up for yourself and not let anyone talk to you like that or treat you like that, or were you just more you just had to focus on basketball and being the best player you could be at the time? combination of both men different these days no way would you get away with the old school hazing but i'll give you a story here one of i'll just leave names out of it one of the senior guys uh upperclassmen senior, senior power forward so i'm a power forward young gun coming in i'm fighting every day in practice for that guy's spot we had a couple months in our practice so players you know the upperclassmen were kind of treating you like crap as you do you just kind of tease the younger guys back then nothing too serious but then i was sitting in the locker room Minding my own business after practice, untying my shoe, getting my gear ready. I was going to take a shower. This upperclassman comes right in, right into my 
I'm sitting down on a stool. He comes down right in front of me. He's got nothing on, and he kind of just waves his man foot in my face and goes, what are you going to do about it? And at that <laughs> point, I was in my head, I remember the clearest day in, in my head, I was like, all right, Gus, either you sit here and take it, the whole team's watching, or you get up and try to fuck this guy up. And I took that ladder option, and I got up and I just went at him, and I took him down on the ground, pinned his ass to the ground, and everyone in the locker room was like, yeah, get him. And from that point, the respect was earned, and I never got fucked with again. It was one of those things where I'm like, all right, I'm a young guy. I've either got to stand up for myself because no one else is. I'm a walk-on. Everyone thinks I'm a punk. That, you know, most guys, they come in and walk-on, don't last a year because they can't handle the intense training. I was there, and I had to prove myself. So just like the jail stories where the guys got to stand up to the, the gangs in a jail, either, either that or you get punked. I had to stand up to him right there, and I had I earned that respect and never got messed with again. So when that incident happened, you had to make that decision in that split second that I'm not going to tolerate this anymore. That was it. And that was, no one had my back. Everyone, was, as soon as I had him on the ground, everyone was like, every senior up the classroom in that, in that locker room was like, whoa. They knew I was there for real. So there was no one messing with me from that point on. Did he respect you after that? Oh, 100%. The whole thing was a game. How can you make the freshman it's like you know Shawshank Redemption you ever watch that movie where they walk in and they're like yeah, yeah, young yeah. Blood, and their whole their whole idea was to make the, the fresh blood crack and cry and, and break well that was no different it was just yeah okay it was in that locker room scenario and their whole thing was let's just make each freshman crack it was tough man there was times where I was like man this sucks because I've never been treated like that before and no one told me to stand up for myself I just knew it was fight or flight and it was like it was either me or I'm going to get punked the rest of my career, or I'm going to not, I'm not going to make it. And I was like, I just, I don't know, just went at it and got instant respect and that was it. And he respected me instantly after that, never fucking me again. And that's a killer story. Thank you very much for that, Dust. That's awesome. Moving on. So you went undrafted in the 2002 draft. You joined the Minnesota Timberwolves NBA Summer League, but you couldn't gain an NBA contract. Throughout your career, have you ever thought about the fact that you never played in the NBA, and is that something you're disappointed that you never got that opportunity to play in the NBA? 100%, man. I've always wanted to fail. I don't know if that makes sense, but give me the opportunity to fail. I want to know that I'm not good enough to play at that level because every level that I've been given an opportunity, um, I've succeeded. No one said I could do anything at the uh, university or Big Ten level. Ended up being all Big Ten two years, one of the top 10 all-time gophers in scoring and rebounding. Went over to the NBL, played overseas. People said I couldn't do it from the first seven years, the average 20 and 10. If I would have just given the opportunity to fail, is what eats at me. Because I didn't get an opportunity to fail in the NBA. I was told that I was too slow on athletic right away. I didn't even make that Minnesota team. Uh, oh, I did. But they pretty much told me I wasn't going to play because I was there. They were just doing me a favor and my agent a favor because I was a hometown hero. I was at the University of Minnesota and they were just wanting to make it. Look like, oh yeah, we're giving the hometown hero a try. But behind the scenes, they were telling me that you're not athletic enough. You never, you know, we're not going to seriously look at you. So it does eat at me because there's guys that got opportunities that I just straight out, flat out played them in the Big Ten. Teammates of mine that I flat out was better than uh, get opportunities because they were looked athletic, more athletic than me, or they had a better looking shot than me. But what I had was I was boring. I was ugly to look at but I was productive and consistent, but they didn't look past that. So that does eat at me because I'll never know if I was good enough or not. Yeah, I know what you're saying. You you wanted to fail 
but at least say that you did everything you could, you had the opportunity, but you just weren't good enough. 100%. If you look back and if you do some research after this, you look at a guy named Brian Cardinal. He's a, he played in the Big Ten for a year or two before me. He played in the NBA for quite a number of years. Four to $50 million contract with the Mavericks. They called him the custodian because he did the dirty work. I kind of looked at that and go, this guy's got the same game as me. He's probably got a better outside game, but he is just right time, right place, and got an opportunity, and he, he did well for himself. He scored 50, 60 mil. And I thought that I was as, as capable as he was. My stats were the same. It's just, you know, a lot of it comes from the look. So those guys that aren't the Kobe Bryant, aren't the LeBron James, seven, eight, nine, ten, seven, there's nothing special about them. It's just the luck, right time, right time, right place, the opportunity arises. And I just never got that opportunity. All right, everyone, it's time for a quick quarter-time break here on A5Q. I want to talk to you about Cappuccino's, the perfect mobile coffee van for your event catering needs. Established in Adelaide, South Australia in 2019 by none other than my father, Gino, Cappuccino's is a family-owned business here to provide you with freshly brewed, hot barista-made beverages on wheels using locally roasted La Crema coffee beans with our preferred blend included for any event needs. Cappuccino's caters for weddings and engagements, sporting events, school, university and work functions and birthday parties just to name a few. Cappuccino's prides ourselves not only on delivering smooth, warm and delicious coffee all at great prices but also fantastic professional customer service with a smile. If our customers walk away satisfied it puts a smile on our face and it means our job has been done correctly. We can also cater for meal deals including bacon and egg rolls and slushies upon request. If you're based in Adelaide and need catering for your next social event, book with Cappuccinos by visiting our website at www.cappuccinos.com spelled C-U-P-P-A-G-I-N-O-S or contact Gino directly via phone at 0418-894-570 or email at cappuccinos at hotmail.com. Now that we've got that out of the way, let's get back to the show. So how did the NBL come about then? Prior to coming here, did you know anything about the league or did, did you even know anything about Australia in general? Not at all. I didn't know. The only thing I knew about Australia was a typical American crocodile hunter, so I knew you guys existed. I didn't know you even had a league. It was kind of like how I got to the Gophers. I had in my hand a hiring agent. I was all Big Ten, so I had, I had a pretty not a I was really never had an ego, but I you know, I figured my agent was telling me, man, you're all Big Ten two years, you should get a six figure contract in Europe and no problem. Well, a couple of contract offers come in from Europe, and they're just shy of a hundred thousand. And my agent was kind of saying, man, you deserve more than that. And he was planning, you, you can get more than this, you can get more than this. And I was like, okay, yeah, I think I should get more than this. Well, turned on a few contracts. Well, nothing else came in from Europe, and I was sitting there at a golf event in Minnesota and Steve Urban, he's a Minnesota booster, good friend of mine. He came up to me, he's like, um, what are you doing for your, are you going to play overseas and play professionally? And I was like, mate, uh, man, I don't know. You know, a couple contracts uh, turned down and there's nothing there. And turns out he played in the NBL in the 1970s, the late 70s, early 80s. So he knew the guys, like he knew Jason Cadiz's dad. So some of these guys that run in NBL clubs when I first started, uh, he knew some of the guys here for the Tory Giants, Peter Fittis' crew, who got me in. He knew a couple guys at Perth. So he made some calls, and he eventually talked to Peter Fittis of the Giants. 
to give me an opportunity. So I kind of had to beg Peter and that crew to, to give me a chance. And that's how it all got started here in the NBL. So that first season at the Victoria Giants, you played 14 games under Mark Wright. Shortly after that, you were cut despite pretty decent numbers on the board, averaging 16.8 rebounds. What was the story there? Man, I think it was just it was just put it down to disagreement with the coach. Mark Wright and I can see eye to eye, and we were kind of struggling at the moment, and they had to get a rid, rid of an import. So Jamal Mosley, who's the coach at Atlanta Magic, was my counterpart import teammate at the time, and we were playing the same position. So it got to the point where we started off the season pretty good. We were kind of shocked a lot of people. One more games than everyone thought we'd win. And then we hit a low spot and everyone was starting to kick our butts. And they made the decision that they needed someone else in. And the imports are usually the scapegoat, first to go. And they wanted to bring in Adonis Jordan. So pretty bad story, man, to be honest with you. It was like, I think it was a couple weeks out from Christmas. We were playing the Brisbane Bullets and on the way to the airport, they told me they cut me. So I'm like, okay, great. You guys just cut me before Christmas. This is pretty shit. And even to add a little bit more worse to that was we get back to Melbourne. Uh, the Victoria Giants were run like a bad news bears team. Not enough money. They couldn't get my flight back to America because there wasn't enough flipping flyer flights. They didn't want to pay for it. Really? So I had to waste for Yeah, man. It was pretty bad. So uh, thankful I had some of the sponsors that I could stay at the, the house that I was with because I knew the family and a couple of their kids were my age. And a couple of the guys were all sharing a house in Frankston. They just kept me here. And they didn't pay for my flight. They were like, oh, we don't have to take the miles. And I'm like, okay. So I think that was the lowest point of my first year because I was like, man, I'm a failure. What am I going to do? And in the end, it was a godsend, really. Because previously, I had played against the Adelaide 36ers in the preseason and in the regular season and averaged like 30 points against the Sixers and really showed out pretty good. And Phil Smythe was sitting there and it was after Christmas and Raji went down. Paul Rogers had some injuries. So they needed to bring someone else in for like an injury placement. And if the Giants would have had money and decent enough to fly me back, I would have been home by Christmas. I probably would have never set foot in Australia ever again. But since they delayed it and I was here into the new year, Phil Smith liked the way I played against them and he needed someone quick. And next thing you know, I was on a flight to Adelaide. And uh, replacement for Roger, you know, finished out that season that year, and, and the rest is kind of history. Yeah, that's a cool story. So, is it fair to say that you, well, you obviously didn't have a very good experience at the Giants, and did you not get along with Mark Wright personally? I just thought, uh, you know, it wasn't, you know, Mark Wright, he, he, he did what he said, he's too much to a coach. We just didn't get along. Uh, not saying he's a bad guy, and it was just, I wasn't the fit to the team. Let's leave it at that. Uh, and it was the best thing ever. You know, whenever I look at my life, it's always played out. You think it's a bad situation, but in the end, it's usually in hindsight. It's the best decision for your, for your path. And that was a great decision because they cut me, and that gave me an opportunity to play in Adelaide. If that wanted to happen, I would have probably played out my season in Victoria, not been signed by anybody else, and I would have been gone. Who knows where I would have been. But instead of that, I went to Adelaide. Phil saw talent, and he saw an opportunity that I could make a difference. And he let me play there for five seasons or four and a half. I averaged over 20. I averaged close to 10 boards. And it kind of set my career up. But it, it was just the, the Giants just weren't my fit for me. And uh, I'm fine with it at the end of the day because everything works out. At least there's a plan at the end of the day. And throughout your time in Adelaide, that's where you began to make a name for yourself within the NBL as a workhorse and someone who's always willing to do those one percenters and you were the ultimate team man. Those three seasons, you made the finals but lost three consecutive elimination finals. 
What do you think was the reason during your time as a 36er that you couldn't quite get it done when it matters the most in finals? Taipans are looking for a hero. They have never been to the semi-finals in seven years. Anthony Stewart gets the job done! Anthony Stewart, the co-captain, nails it on the buzzer, and the Cairns Taipans are going to the semi-finals for the first time in NBL history. What an amazing finish. It is 106-103, and they are celebrating, and deservedly so. Anthony Stewart... In the corner, comes up with the finish that has ended Adelaide season. And the Taipans are going to face the Sydney Kings for a spot in the big dance. Full time in Adelaide, the Taipans 106 have defeated Adelaide 103. Great question. I don't, I don't know if I can answer that, Connor. We always had a decent team. I know we had a home record every year I was there. We were always like 15 and 1 or 14 and 2. We had a great record. It was just when it comes down to the finals, it was just couldn't get it done. I don't, I couldn't, I can't put my head to it or I can't put my hand on a specific thing. One year we lost to the Bullets at home. I think that was my second year with the Sixers. And they came in and just totally stunned us. Scouting report, Ben Castle, scouting report 15% on the year, three point shooter. We were going to help off him and just, we were just going to live by his three point ability. And it turned out he had the high hand that night and that killed us. Because he, he went bam, bam, bam in the first couple of quarters. And we were chasing our tails ever since. I, couldn't, I can't put my finger on it, man. I wish I could. Because the teams we had were pretty good. We had Willie Fari, myself, Marzi, Charles Thomas that first year. Catalini was there. Jacob Holmes, Oscar Foreman. Yeah, we had a good, good, good little team. crew there. I don't know why we couldn't uh, make it an advance in the playoffs. I wish I knew. I've listened to a, a few other interviews with you in the past. And you always speak very highly of Phil Smythe. What was your relationship like with, with Phil Smythe at your time there in Adelaide and what was it about him that allowed you to, to become that very well-respected player in the NBL? And man, I got all, all the respect in the world for Phil. One, he gave me all the people saw talent that I had that no one else saw. He's a player's coach. You, you hear about guys talk about, you know, that's a player's coach, that's not a player's coach. You were good, did the right thing. You were working hard, uh, especially for an import. I think he talked to any import that played under him. He gave, he gave you the ultimate green light. You get out and do what you want. He, he, he's like, I always say, get the pasta, shoot more. He's like, he just gave you that uber confidence that you know, as a player you want. And there was not much structure. It wasn't like you had to be in this spot at this time. You only can touch the ball here. You don't even look at the shot when you're up in the three points. He didn't care. He, was, he did care, but he was like, the import that he thought was just sick. That's your natural talent and ability to do stuff. He just let you play. And that and he just built that confidence. And that was man, I didn't play I've never played for a coach like Phil ever again. He just gave you that confidence. And as long as you're producing for him, he lets you do what you wanted to do. Like I was averaging over twenty. At one point I was at twenty six and ten. And yeah, if you got the shot, go at it. Uh, if you don't have it, swing the ball around. And he played an up and down style. It was like up and go, get the board and run. And it was just a fun coach to play for him. And actually, it was just a great cool guy. It was fun. Referee says, fellas, take a break. It's halftime. Hey, everyone. I just want to say a very big thank you to those who have engaged with A5Q. I really do appreciate all the support. It would be a massive help if you could please do me a solid. Subscribe to the podcast and hit me up with a rating and a review. 
Gaining as much positive feedback as possible helps boost my visibility and it allows the podcast to be seen by other Australian sports tragics out there. Now, enough of that. Let's get back into it because the second half of A5Q is about to get underway. So you seemed like you, you really loved Adelaide and, and your time at the 36ers. Why is it that you moved on from the club? Was, it, was that your doing to, to part ways with the 36ers? Definitely not, man. I wanted to be, I wanted to play in Adelaide for my whole career if I could have. came down to that. Everyone's heard about the Joe Ingles debacle, the one where the Sixers messed up on offering him a contract that was two grand under NBA league minimum or yeah. NBL league minimum that he took off. Yeah, and on the <laughs> contract, they spelled his name wrong. Yeah, that was management at the same time I was there. So I had a two-year. I was all about long, like security, right? I wasn't up for the one-year contract, and then I'd always have to fight for next year and next year. I wanted a two, three-year contract for security reasons. And I uh, was that same. Or my end of my last year was the Sixers, and I had a two-year deal. And uh, Willie Farley, he wanted security as well because he had five or six kids, and he needed security as well. They went to me. Management went by my agent. And instead of offering me a two-year deal, they only offered me a one-year deal. And we couldn't get any more out of them. I, I didn't want a one-year deal. I wanted security, and they won't give it to me. Whatever reasons, I don't know the whole story there. And then my agent at that time threw my name on the thing at the NBA. Everyone at the NBA thought I was going to be an Adelaide guy for life, which I would have been. And all of a sudden, my name got floated on the direct gap to the board. Jeff Van Grongen saw that there were issues with Bobby Brand. And Joey Wright was all good uh, against against the board and he's a guy when we would cut the mistakes and see what we can do and they came up with a two three deal that was like they couldn't be matched and Adelaide Adelaide so you wanted to stay in Adelaide 100% yeah because I mean back then that's when the NBL was not in the greatest financial position so to get any more than a one year deal was pretty rare wasn't it prior to the I guess 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 season where it was after the GFC where clubs almost the whole league almost went under. Guys like imports were uh, guys were getting. I mean, Raji, Raji and Catalini signed five-year deals each for Adelaide the year before I got there. So there were clubs out there handing you know five-year deals, three-year deals to people. So it wasn't rare. The clubs had money back then. It was just Adelaide at that time just was under poor management and maybe some money issues. But there were deals out there going for two, three years. The guys were everywhere signing them. Yeah, right. Well, it ended up being a pretty good move. You joined Brisbane ahead of the 2006-07 season and you won the championship. Now, that Brisbane Bullets team with Ebi Arad and CJ Bruton, Dylan Boucher, Mark Bradkey, Sam McKinnon, a young Adam Gibson and, and Chris Golding yourself, led by Joey Wright, a league record 21 straight wins to finish top. You won the grand final series 3-1. Some people even consider that team to be the greatest NBL team of all time. What made that team so unstoppable? Because realistically, looking back now, no one was ever going to beat you guys that season. The Bullets will start celebrating. The team owned by Eddie Groves and the ABC Learning Centres have handed the reigning champions a grand final lesson to clinch their first title in 20 years and send the Bullets fans to Brisneyland. Full time from the cage in Melbourne. Reads Brisbane 103. Melbourne 94. And as Big Joe gets up on the stage, we won't keep the Brisbane Bullets waiting any longer. Ladies and gentlemen, will you please put your hands together for the 2007 NBL champions, the Brisbane Bullets. 
you know what kills teams that are supposed to be on paper super teams is no one wants to take a back seat and park their egos. What was great about that team that made us so unbelievably good was we had Xavier Ross, he's coming off the Nigerian Olympics. We had CJ coming off the Olympics. We had Sam coming off the Olympics. Dylan Boucher coming off the Olympics. Adam Gibson. So we had like five, six Olympians on our team. We had Mark Bradkey coming off the bench. We had guys there that could have egos to the roof and, and, you know, give me the ball, give me that ball. But Mark Bradkey could have started. He said, no, guys, for the better of the team, I'm going to come off the bench. He let me start. Everyone else took a back seat. CJ Bruton was a 20, 22 points a game player. He took a back seat, averaged 14, was more of a facilitator. We had just guys parking their me-first attitudes for the better of the team, and that's unheard of for a bunch of superstars. That team was absolutely stacked, and we struggled the first six games of the year. I remember we were 3-3, three and three. and I remember looking through a corridor and seeing Joey Wright grab his head, and we were in Sydney. I think we were losing or lost that game, and um, we turned it around, and it was just because the guys were humble. And took a back seat for the greater good of the team. And I've never been a part of a team like that before, ever in my life. It's just one of those moments that everything came together and it just all clicked and everyone was really happy for anyone that succeeded. And um, one through 10 could have went out there and gave you 20 every night on any given night. What was the turning point? Because uh, uh, my memory serves me correct because you just confirmed it, but you didn't start the season all that well, but it, it just suddenly clicked and the bullets were just on this roll. Was there a time during practice or did someone say something or do something that changed things? And could you ever foresee what was about to happen before those 21 wins in a row? Nah, nah, I couldn't, I couldn't tell you that was ever going to come. How it turned, I couldn't tell you. But all I can tell you was practices were competitive. We had a, it was very competitive. We had a WWF or WWE, you know, those wrestling belts that win championships like yeah, Brock yeah, Lesnar yeah. or The Rock. We had one of those from Kmart or where you get a big W that was hanging up on a practice wall. And the second five that we had that played against us would kick our ass in practice and prance around the gym. Like, we're better than you guys. They would just challenge us. We're better than you guys. How can you guys be starting? And it was just an inner squad battle that made us better. It wasn't about playing the Sydney Kings or the Wollongong Hawks at the time about who we were going to play next. It was like, can we kick our second string five? Because if we don't, they're just going to prance around and just talk shit to us for the next week at practice. And that was just the inner squad battle. It just made us better. We all pushed each other. Someone got a little bit too cocky. The team hierarchy would settle them down and was just, and I think that's what made us great that year. And when the siren goes in game four of the grand final series and you know that you're forever scripted in NBL history as a champion, what's that feeling like when you reach the ultimate glory? Man, it's, it's an awesome feeling because you don't win too many championships as a player at any level. And to win it that year where we started off the season so miserably and to culminate it and it had a 21-game you know, winning streak and we're touted as some of the best. And, you know, halfway through that, towards the end of that season, we were beating teams by 30, 40 points with so much ease. It was just ridiculous. And to cap it off, because there's a lot of teams that do that and they're, they're great in the preseason or in the season get a premiership in the regular season, but they can't translate that in the playoffs. And for us to do that, I just remember it was a great feeling to be there and finally get an NBL championship, which so many don't, even though, you know, it's only one that I've ever won. To get to a grand final and win it, you don't get too many of those opportunities and to do it with that, that group and to set those many records in one year and be up to all-time great in NBA history, 
something that I can tell and tell my kids about and you know be proud of. Yeah, for sure. Awesome insight. And uh, jo- Joey Wright's stories is interesting. He very successful coach in Brisbane, coached that amazing Bullets team to the championship. Uh, he won Coach of the Year multiple times. What was your take on on Joey Wright and and what made him so successful in that year? I think what Joey has got is he's one of those guys like Phil Smythe, right? He he gives you uh, he gives you uber confidence. He'll call your number and he'll back you. That's what made Joey great. And he's also makes you he he holds you accountable. What made that team that year great was our defense, and Joey pressed that hard. Uh, not only we were great offensively, but it was a defensive-minded group where we collectively just hunted as a pack. And that was stemmed from Joey just hounding us. We were dogging guys 94, 94 feet by 94 feet, just back and forth. And it was just our defense that led to opportunities, and that was led by him, just not giving up on us. Joey you know, has got a reputation of going hard, and that what happened to Adelaide happened to Adelaide, but he's just that type of guy. He's passionate. He challenges you. He goes hard at players. That's one thing. He didn't treat Sam McKinnon, C.J. Bruton, myself, Bradkey, any different than what happened those guys that were seven, eight, nine, ten on the, on the depth chart. He paid everybody saying, you fucked up, he let you know about it. He held you accountable and he was passionate and there's no backing down. He just had that fire and he built that, that confidence in you. And that's, that was, that's what made Joey great. So what about the year the year after? So the year after, you, you're still very good and made the playoffs, but the, the Bullets weren't quite as good as what they were the, the previous year. But after that season, the club disbanded. What was that time like? You've, you've basically just come off a championship and now you're without a club. I'm assuming that was a, a strange experience to go through. Yeah, man, 100%. To, to answer your first part of that question there, what was different? Well, you know what? The, we lost a couple of players. So we lost Mark Bradkey, huge loss. Can never replace him. And when Stephen Black decided he wanted to go play for his dad in Cairns, we lost him as well. Two guys that were key pieces of the puzzle that we just couldn't replace. Uh, we had Craig Bradshaw coming in. Uh, he just didn't equate to what we thought we'd do. He didn't replace Bradkey's consistency, and we had no one to bring in, bring what Stephen Black did. Blackie was just one of those guys that he was lights out, could shoot from anywhere, and missing him. Those two guys were probably our biggest factors, and, and we just didn't have anyone to plug those holes. And then to tell you another story, that year was good. I think we ended it up third on the ladder that year yep third. i don't recall we had we had some battles with the tigers in the pre, in the in the regular season which was epic and then we got the first round of the playoffs and we we're playing the tigers so it was just back and forth but we ended up losing and to, to answer your question what it was, was like we didn't know that eddie was having those problems with abc and he was gonna lose everything uh we had no idea we kind of had an idea that oh shit the gfc was happening we didn't know how severe it was we didn't know how leveraged Eddie and ABCs were in America at that time. We just didn't have that kind of in-depth information. And then we were playing the Tigers. We were eating breakfast the day of the game. And front news is Eddie Groves, ABC Learning Center. I can't remember if it was Eddie. It was a picture of Eddie with his crying or his hand was on his head. But that was front page. ABC is down. This is everything. And not one player spoke to each other that that practice leading up to that game because we all knew it was over. We all knew it was over. Not the game that was over. We just knew the bullets were down because Eddie was the only supporter. He had no diversity. He didn't have any of the owners. And that was front page. And we're eating breakfast. And it was just an eerie feeling knowing that was over. It was crazy, man. It was a real, real weird time. As a former player, what was it like for you 
when the club returned in 2016 and obviously being a championship player of that club when the when the bullets returned yeah it was it was good that they they, they came back man it was brisbane queensland basketball they love the basketball up here not to have a team in brisbane such uh, a famous club tough. yeah and it, it was tough because support that the they have here in queensland second to none they got a great venue out at nissan arena uh, get about four or five thousand every night good atmosphere and it's good basketball. So I'm glad that the kids that are growing up to the grassroots level have something they would aspire to. And um, their organizations, they're out there spreading the news. So at the time, were you left without a club completely? Like, did, did, does anyone help you find a contract elsewhere? Man, it was one of those things where I look at the career that's going to pull up and be honest. And a lot of the people's misfortunes, and I left prison five, seven years from Adelaide my years in, in Brisbane, so seven years, what's the average? They had 20 and 10. I had no chance. My agent reached out to a lot, of, a lot of clubs, and they're saying, no thanks. And I'm, like, I'm thinking, what the hell? I've just been one of the top imports in the state for seven years, and no one wants me. And I think some people threw in some favors. Wollongong, I'm, I think, was looking for someone. I can't remember who, who called up Wollongong. But someone did a favor there, and I ended up only on a one-year deal. Played there, played there for that year. It was a huge, another humbling experience because you go from the Brisbane Bullets, you're flying around, Eddie Grove, private jet, flying you from game to game, venue to venue, living a good lifestyle for the Bullets, and then you go and go play for Wollongong. Great club, great people. Just didn't have the money the Bullets had. And it was hard to swallow, and it was just a hard adjustment in what I was used to with the Brisbane team. But they gave me the opportunity, and then that year they went under and got resurrected later that year, but I'd already left, and Cairns offered me a two-year deal, and that's how I ended up in Cairns. Yeah, and that's that's another thing I've been keen to ask you about. So both Wollongong and Cairns really are, they probably are the two smallest clubs in the NBL even today. After you've played for a big organization like the Adelaide 36ers and, and the Brisbane Bullets, what is the difference when you go to a smaller NBL club in terms of the finance and just what it's like being around the club? Is it more of that sort of underdog feeling? Yeah, I guess Wollongong was. Wollongong was more because that's a battler kind of industrial city that's like hard nose, get you get out there and, and just get the job done. Cairns was great. Of all my places I've ever played, the buzz before a game and the crowd, nothing beats Adelaide. That, I remember used to rock it up to Adelaide and going, man, this vibe is awesome. It just gave you that confidence because it was just the buzz before the game. Everyone's in there and having drinks and just you can just hear the buzz. Cairns had that same kind of atmosphere, just at a smaller scale. The community just rounded up around the team. When we made the playoffs 2011 in the grand final, the whole team, uh, the whole town was orange. And it just was reminding me the community had our backs. And it was just that small town vibe. It's kind of like Hoosiers. You know, that movie Hoosiers where the small town gets behind everybody and, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and does things that no one thought they could do. That year we made it was pretty crazy. And, you know, in the four years I was up in Kansas, some of my best, not only did uh, we make the grand final, but off the court relationships we made, they just really welcomed my, um, my partner and myself during those four years. And we really had a great time in Kansas. So what do you think it was that you just couldn't get the job done in the grand final series against the New Zealand Breakers? Obviously, they were a great team that year, won four championships in, in five years. Aaron Grabeau shoots the last shot of the season, and New Zealand are the Ironman NBL Championship winners here in 2011. NBL Championship. 
against the New Zealand Breakers. The New Zealand Breakers, very deserved winners. They dominated in the end, Andrew Gaze, and they're soaking it up. Yeah, great question. Man, they just were better than us, to be honest. We pushed that. It was a three-game series back then. They beat us in New Zealand. They came to Cairns. I don't know if you remember that game, but we went into overtime or triple overtime or double overtime. Ron Dorsey hit a fall away out of bounds three, and we ended up winning that game to push the third game or the starter in New Zealand. Man, it was just, they were too good. They had great supports. They had Kurt Penny, great Kiwi staff. They had Bacona, Dylan Boucher, Paul Hanari. They were awesome, just, yeah. They were, yeah, man, they were just better than us, but for us to push that the final game for someone that no one thought they could get there. No one counted us in the grand final that year. And for us to be there and almost win it, that was pretty special. Even though we didn't lose, I mean, we didn't we didn't take home the trophy and get a ring. It was still pretty pretty special how we got there. That group of guys pretty special. That would have had to have been had you guys beaten New Zealand that year. That would have had to have been the biggest upset in NBL history. Uh, I would have been up there. I think Townsville that year. Everyone picked Townsville in New Zealand grand final. Cause they had homicide. I think they had homicide. No, homicide was out that year. But Townsville had a pretty dang good year. I think they came second on a ladder. I think it was, you know, it might have been that year or if not the year before. Yeah, I think homicide was gone. Gleason had cut homicide in 2010. 2010 was homicide's MVP year. I think Gleason cut him that following year. Correct, yes. Um, but they still had a good squad. I think they finished one or two on the year on the ladder. And everyone picked them to beat us. And we had a great battle with them as well, and it helped squeezing them at, at, at Townsville. And to win, if you, anyone knows that Townsville cans battle, they hate each other. It's like big brother, little brother. It's just a battle. And for us to go in there and beat them, especially after the Grim Reaper episode that they did when the cans had to go under uh, the, in 2009, it was all the cans fans were just so happy to beat them in their own stadium. And it was it was great to be a part of that as well. All right, everyone, before we get into the final stretch of this episode, we need to take one more break for three-quarter time here on A5Q. Aside from podcasting, another one of my big passions is fragrances. I love trying out different scents and seeing how they work on my skin and the vibe they give off, showcasing me and my personality. Gentlemen, you don't want to be remembered as the guy who smells bad and blows people away with their B.O., And you don't want to be that guy that just smells like nothing at all. But at the same time, you do not have to go out and spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars on fragrances. It's about smelling good, it's about getting compliments, and it's about standing out from the crowd. It's the silent accessory that gives you that extra presence when you walk into a room. If you're interested in fragrances or it's something you want to start getting into, check out my Instagram page, Amato's Sixth Scent, where I post one-minute fragrance reviews for men. I showcase a range of fragrances from your standard chemist store scents to your high-end niche ones. The fresh, youthful, citrusy summer scents to the dark, warm, and mysterious winter ones. Gentlemen, I do not make any money from this. It's not a business or an affiliate page. I spend my own hard-earned money on my fragrances, and I just run the page for fun. So definitely go check out Amato's Sixth Scent on Instagram if you want fragrance recommendations and tips to smell good get compliments, and stand out from the crowd. But in the meantime, let's get back to the show. Your time at Cairns in totality, you played, well, you, you, your first couple of years were really good. You won the MVP in your first year. 
but then the last couple of years you were you were stifled with injury. Did that at all leave a sour taste in your mouth? Because well, I it's just common sense, really. I, I would assume no one wants to be injured. Was it disappointing that your last couple of years you sort of weren't at the level that you previously had been at? Man, yeah, you hit the nail on the head there, spot on. I was disappointed because I was so used to the productivity that I had for the eight or nine seasons prior. And to go into Cairns that first year and win MVP with the team that we did was cool. And then the next year, we had a different view on where we wanted to go and started coming off the bench. And just started having old man injuries, man. I was 34 years old, 33, 34, 35, somewhere on there. And just started getting stupid injuries, like uh, a ball hit my hand, shattered my knuckle, got flipped over in practice, fractured my leg. Just all these little niggly injuries. And I just tended to my foot. I could never get right. And, you know, it was just father time tapping me on the back saying, look, man, it, it catches up to everybody. It's a shame that I didn't get to go out the way I wanted to go. But, man, I, I defied odds, and I, I lasted a lot longer than anyone ever thought I would. So, I mean, I look back at my career, and I'm not disappointed with anything. The only thing I'm disappointed in is not getting the opportunity to fail at the NBA level. But I can't fault anything else. Father time always wins. i got two questions. The first one is not getting the opportunity to play in the NBA your biggest regret. And then the second question is, for a professional athlete, when they know it's time to hang the boots up and retire, what's that emotion like? Yeah, I, get, I, I don't know if not making a first answer, first question, I don't know if not making the NBA is regret because that's, that was out of my, that's out of my control. I'm disappointed that I never got that opportunity. But then on the second flip side of that, I played for 14 years at a high level, not, not including the four years in college. And I had a hell of a career. I, mean, I went a lot of places around the world, met a lot of great people, and I look back at it and go out down a lot of things that people would love to have that kind of career. So, yes, it's disappointing, but I can't dwell on it because it's out of my control. And to answer that, when that time comes, I think a lot of people are in denial when, you know, that time comes and you're not performing, you're small injuries, you know you've got to give up, you know, and hang it up here pretty soon. By that time, I was pretty like, mate, I've, I've got to be done. I didn't want to be that ass, that guy that, just hanging on and trying to be, you know, his identity is basketball. And even though he's not producing and just hanging around and, you know, I'm, I'm just tarnishing the 10, 12 years that I had prior that everyone remembers you. I was very content. I knew it was time to leave and uh, I was looking forward to the next chapter of my life. But then again, saying that I do miss it, but like I said, father time wins and it, it comes to an end for everyone. So Dusty, just as we're almost about to close up now, Throughout your entire career, you were always considered a workhorse, someone who wasn't necessarily considered overly classy or, or high profile. Did that tag ever bother you, or was that something you really made your own throughout your career? Yeah, you can't let it bother you, man. I was also coined the garbage man by Steve Carfino. And everyone yeah, you were too, like, yeah. Yeah, and I remember my grandma, she would get my chase because I'd send my DVDs back to my dad. He would hand it out to family members that wanted to keep watching me. And she heard Carpino say, the garbage man. And she was so pissed off. And I had to call her up and say, you know, it's not, it doesn't mean I'm a trash player. <laughs> it just means I get out there, I put putbacks in, I hit mid-range jumpers. I pick up the scraps. That guy that cleans up everything is just efficient and consistent. So it was, I looked at it as a, as a positive. And not everybody can be a scorer. Not everybody can be a Willie Farley or uh, Andrew Gaze or... The, the Eddie Raw that can go out there and give you 30 and be that flashy guy. I knew it wasn't me. I knew what I could produce. I can give you consistent 20 and 10 in my early days, be consistent, and I can be replied upon. And every team needs a guy like that. There's a guy that needs to be a superstar. You just need a team of role players. You need to find out where you're going to roll. 
is going to be. And I knew that I was going to go give you, I could be a scoring forward and my scoring ability wasn't pretty, but I was consistent. I could get it done at any level. And I, I proved that. So it was never a negative for me. I looked at it as a positive and you got to fit in where you can get in. My ability was that kind of guy. I didn't want to sit there and try to be the high flying, you know, flashy player. That's just not me. I look stupid. So I just played doing my ability and I played the best that I could. And Dusty, just got three last questions for you. And I always ask these three questions at the end of the episodes. In your entire career, who is the best player you ever played with and why? Who's the best player you ever played against and why? And lastly, who's the best coach you ever played under and why? All right. First one, best player that I played with and why. And the reason why I'm going to go with this guy, and no one will probably ever get them, is because he made me better. He fed me the ball. He just gave me this stuff on a silver platter, and I only played with him for half a season, and that's Charles Thomas. He played two years at Adelaide, and I guess I could put Marzi in there as well. But Charles really fed me. He he was a guy that he would flash in. He was that point guard, but he would just give me the ball, and all I had to do was just lay it in, or it was in my rhythm. And it was never played with a guy that could give me the ball like he did and, and make me look that good. Unfortunately, the only, the only down part is that I only played 14 games with Charles. No, I played the next season with Charles as well, I think. I played a season and a half with Charles. So I just had fun playing with him. He fed me. He, he, I made him look good and gave him a fist. And he was just a good, good around guy. I, I got along with him. The best player that I played against, and I would do it because he was the toughest player that I always had to engage because he was good at everything. Glenn Savile at Wollongong. The guy was just one of those guys that if he guarded you, you're like, shit, he's going to get me. Because he could play defense, he was long, he's athletic, he could get it. And then also on offense, he could go get it on offense as well. He was long, athletic, he could get buckets. He was just one of those guys, like, he could do everything and pay the coin against him. Just because he was Mr. Do-Everything. And he was a hell of a player. He was also a great teammate as well when I played for Wollongong. And uh, the final question, I, I think I answered it earlier in the, this interview, the best coach I played against, uh, under. And the only reason I, I put Phil Smythe at the top of that list is because the way he gave me free reign. Like, I got the ultimate green light and the confidence for those four years that I was playing with him that no one else gave me in my career. And he also gave me that opportunity to, once I got cut from Victoria, he saw something in me. You know, there's only those guys in your life where you only need one person to believe in you. And at that time in the NBL, everyone thought I was a trash import. If you go back and look at the TV records or video or VHS or the DVDs, everyone coined me as that first import that would get cut. We were playing in Perth and Vlahov on there saying, I'm the guy that's going to be the first cut import. No one in Australia in the NBL thought I would have lasted 12 years, but Phil saw something in me and gave me that shot. So he was one of my, he was my favorite coach to play for. And he also was the first person to see something in me in the NBL. Fantastic answers. Dusty Riker, it's been fantastic to have you on the show. I've really appreciated your time and your stories have been fantastic. And I wish you all the very best with family and everything you're doing in your professional life out of basketball. Thank you so much for your time here tonight. Yeah, no worries, mate. Thanks for having me, Dan. And that's a wrap. Thank you to everyone for tuning into A5Q. Don't forget to spread the word, subscribe, leave a rating. Until next time.